0: Welcome back to the Made Possible podcast, or if you're here for the first time, it's great to have you. Thanks for joining us. My name is Carly Cunningham, and I'm thrilled to be your host of this collaboration between Small Business BC and my very own small business, Big Bold Brand. The purpose of Made Possible is to share revealing, inspiring, and sometimes winceworthy stories about starting and growing a small business. My goal as your host is to expose insightful wisdom and savvy advice about what makes building a successful small business possible. Most importantly, we created Made Possible for you, the motivated small business owner who is seeking inspiration and insights to fuel your entrepreneurial fire and make your vision a reality. Before we dive into this week's interview that is just loaded with business brilliance, here's a quick word from our sponsor. This first season of the Made Possible podcast is brought to you thanks to our sponsors, WorkSafeBC. In addition to their important role in workplace health and safety, WorkSafeBC has worked alongside our provincial health officials to support workers and employers across the province during the pandemic. To find out more, or to view WorkSafeBC's comprehensive list of COVID-19 resources, visit worksafebc.com. On today's episode of Made Possible, we're speaking with the dynamic husband and wife duo who founded Bread, a 100% plant-based bakery in Whistler. Bread was the winner of Small Business BC's Best Youth Entrepreneur Category for 2021, sponsored by KPU. Natasha and Ed are going to share their story with us about how Ed's love of sourdough and gastronomy turned them into accidental scientists, and created a mission-driven business whose ultimate goal is to help turn Whistler into an ecotourism destination. There is so much goodness baked into this episode. A few highlights are that we're gonna talk about what it takes to build a thriving business with your life partner, how one of them beat all the odds that they faced as a child growing up in the foster care system, what it looks like to build a mission-based business for the greater good, how to conduct job interviews to find people that are the perfect fit with the exact expertise that you're seeking, and so much more. That should be enough to tempt your entrepreneurial taste buds, so let's dive in. On today's episode of the podcast, we're heading up the Sea to Sky Corridor into Whistler, right into Creekside to have a conversation with Ed and Natasha Tatton from Bread. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Carly.
2: Thanks, Carly. Good to be
0: here. So why not start with the origin of your business? It's always a good place to start with a story and a conversation. We all know that sourdough was all the rage during the pandemic, but you were way ahead of the curve on this one. How did Ed start making bread and how did your restaurant bread come to be?
2: Uh, I've been a a chef. I've been working in kitchens since I was 13 and always had a passion for food. Eating food, cooking food, um, always worked in fine dining kitchens, and the love of bread just grew from there, really. Um, I probably made my first bread at college, catering college, um, where I went when I was 17 for three years. And then my first sourdough um, was probably about 12 years ago and started making it in restaurants and instantly like loved the simplicity of creating bread without using any commercial products, just using the bacteria and flour, water and salt. And then it grew from there once we we moved to to Whistler in 2013, um, which was supposed to be six months in Whistler, six months in Montreal. And uh, seven years later, we're still in Whistler. So it it definitely captured our hearts. So then I brought that passion and that experience of making sourdough to the restaurant I was working in, Alta Bistro. Uh, Farm to table, um, very good restaurant here in Whistler. Um, started the bread program there, and started making it on my days off, um, giving it to friends and to the yoga studio that we were uh, that we would go to. And people would naturally just start smelling it and say, "Where can we buy this bread? It's incredible." So then that started the idea. It was like, okay, like there is a demand for the sourdough in Whistler. No one's really doing it at all. Um, so I spoke to the, to the restaurant and said, Hey, can I, can I rent the space from you? We, we weren't do we don't do lunch at the restaurant. So we'd make the bread on the Wednesday morning, um, put it in the fridge to ferment overnight and then come in on the Thursday and, and bake the loaves fresh. And it was all done through Facebook. Very, um, very small 30 loaves. I remember being worried if I was going to sell the 30 loaves. Um, and then it was like this underground, like bread club. People would just talk about it and get their friends on board, all done on trust through Facebook. So, really grassroots. Like, I think I'd probably put in a few hundred dollars to start with to buy the tins and a little bit of equipment. And then it just grew and grew, really, from there, sort of went to 50 lows to 150 lows um, over the course of about 18 months. And it was great. It was moving market research. We could see what people enjoyed, what their favorites were. They would give me feedback straight away because I was running around baking, serving the customer. So it was all a one-man show. Natasha was working as a teacher. So she would come in when she could to help me out. Um, And then it was the customers. They were like, when are you going to open a shop?
1: So um, I saw Ed running around trying to manage all the sales and the baking I tried to do what I could to help him. I would stamp the bread bags on my evenings. I would go in for an hour before school and deal with customers. Um, And then customers started saying to us, when are you going to open a bread shop? I don't want to wait for every Thursday to get this. And more and more people started saying it. And Ed thought, oh, okay, there's actually like an opportunity here, like the community are asking for a bakery. And it just seemed like a logical step. But I mean there was no bakery ready to go it would mean building one out so it kind of required some capital and that's really where i came in we had an asset back in the uk we owned a house together our plan was to go back to that home after canada but as ed said we decided to stay and this house was starting to become a bit of a burden it was a victorian property very old and any day we were expecting a call to say like the roof needs replacing or something like that and we really just needed to get rid of it anyway so we sold it and it went to somebody that wanted a doer upper um and so we were able to use that money so that meant that i would come on board as 50 percent ownership and i really started to think about how i could be of value to this as a business and i'd been doing some volunteer work with a local environmental group called aware that's the um association of whistler area residents for the environment and i was vice president on the board of governance for a couple of years and all that time i remember being quite frustrated that i didn't really feel like i was doing much to actually help the environment when you're in a governance role it's it's not necessarily grassroots doing that much kind of active work um it's important but it wasn't really what i wanted to do um and i thought well maybe we can create a concept that is in alignment with my values and what i want to be working in and ed and i were both vegan so when the community said um are you going to open a bakery we want you to open a bakery in our minds it was like okay we can do that it's going to be vegan because we're vegan so we don't we don't live a life that um harms animals unnecessarily so we don't want to exploit animals for profit so it's going to have to be vegan but we already had the community support behind us and we knew people would come in and buy the bread and anything else we did um, like espresso drinks and small baked items like cinnamon buns and that kind of thing it would just be an added bonus and um, most people love it and they come to the bakery they don't even know it's vegan a lot of the time Um, And I've managed to bring a lot of skills I learned while I was teaching, like networking and marketing and human resources, and then sales. I I manage the front of house, Ed manages the kitchen. So we've kind of carved out our own roles within the business and we work really well together, thankfully.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's always a blessing when you work well with your partner, whether it's your life partner or your business partner or your business and life partner, um, I've had experience with both. Let's talk about that relationship outside of the business and how do you find time outside of the business to thrive as a couple? Because I know it's hard.
2: Yeah, it's it's really difficult, um, especially because we are, because the sort of bread started at the restaurant that was very grassroots. It was kind of like a little side hustle. It helped actually fund our wedding so it was nice and it was kind of we had our separate lives and we you know we had days off whereas now we often say actually if we weren't together as business partners the other one would probably get quite frustrated because it is so consuming but i think it's so consuming because we're so passionate about it like i think that's why we've sort of won these accolades and are are sort of on this really good train where we are getting a lot of media attention because we put everything into it. Like Tash said, we sold our house. We've taken extra loans out as well. That only funded, just the house only funded 50% of what we needed. So we had to sort of reach out to community futures and other lenders um, to, to borrow more more money because we knew that we could grow it and we needed equipment that would facilitate that. So it's, it's hard to find a balance, but being in nature definitely helps. We'll often go out for walks, you know, just to clear your head for an hour a day, but a lot of the time, it will still come around to talking about staffing issues or, you know, a new recipe recipe, or something like that. But definitely getting out in nature helps and just making sure that you are putting that time aside. Um, and maybe like we are at the moment, we're closed for a couple of weeks to to catch up on, you know, rest for ourselves, ready for a busy summer.
0: Natasha, what about you? Any tips for aspiring couple entrepreneurs? to maintain the balance and thriving in both business
1: and life? Well, I just think it's important to have your own roles and understand who's in charge of what. So I take more of a human resources, finance, and strategy role. And when we're in the bakery running the operations, um, Ed is the, the main boss. He has 20 years of fine dining kitchen experience. So he he knows how to run a tight ship in that respect. And so I will acknowledge that that's his time to be the boss. And then when we're um, working on where the business is going, I will often make decisions and um, come up with ideas. Of course, we both have a part to play in all of it. But uh, it's good to have that sort of decide which areas each of you is in charge of, because then you're less likely to to clash.
0: I like that nuance of not who's in charge, but who's in charge of what. Yes. And I like how you broke that out. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You both took interesting paths to get to where you are today. And I'm hoping that you can dig into some of the specifics of your career, your job experience, and how that's contributed to building a successful business. Because what I like to shine a light on is the fact that there really is no overnight success. It's a bit of a myth. And we all layer the things that we have learned and the skills that we bring with us into our businesses. So what I want to talk about is Ed, how did a former footman of Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle, and a guy who cooked for DJ Jazzy Jeff from the Fresh Prince end up opening a shop in Whistler. So you've told us a little bit about that path, but talked about specifically the career path and things, skills that you've learned along the way that apply.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I was never very, I I always knew I wanted to be a chef since a very young age. Um, But my mom is a teacher still now. She's 70 years old and she's still teaching and she loves it. And she was always the one to say, well, you're not just going to finish school at 16 and and go and work in a kitchen. I want you to further you know have a certificate which i was never really into because a lot of the kitchens it's where have you worked and what's your attitude um, when you do like a trial shift you know it's not normally what you've got on a piece of paper but actually that meant that we could get our residency in canada you know years later i came in as a skilled worker so thanks to my (laughs) mum even though she's not that happy that we're you know on the other side of the world you know that that piece of paper enabled us to be here you know forever hopefully um but so that sort of being at college that opened doors to being a footman at buckingham palace because i did a sort of cooking and a serving um course it was a hospitality course so it was two years of being in the kitchen and front of house so we learned how to you know do silver service for example and for state visits um in the UK, in London, Windsor Castle, and Buckingham Palace, they would ask our college because we were one of the top in the UK for the top servers, the top students that could come along. And it was paid. We were paid for it just to help out and run around and move things around. And that was really good fun. That was, you know, pretty prestigious. Um, so that was fun. And then, sort of, always working in fine dining kitchens working for, you know, cooking for people like Jazzy Jeff and other celebrities around the world. um, It's given me that sort of insight to flavor combinations and textures that maybe if I worked in a bakery, I wouldn't have learned um, as much about those sorts of things. Um, I don't have any professional experience as a baker. Um, I've done stages in other bakeries in San Francisco and and L.A. um, just for free just to see how they run those bakeries. But really, I think that's what I bring to our bakery is the sort of broader picture of using local produce, seasonal produce from the farms that we have up here. Um, And then also thinking about how flavors work together and textures. Um, And that goes throughout with the cinnamon buns, the cakes, and also the breads as well. And then also I have a love of photography. So that really helps with the I also run the social media for the business. So I do the Instagram and Facebook and things like that.
0: I love that you mentioned texture in food. It's not something people recognize, but as a kid, I was very texture sensitive and it was very frustrating for my parents. I'm still texture sensitive and people look at me funny when I say that. Tell me more about texture in food and how you've refined that.
2: Uh, Yeah, so uh, I mean, you want balance within a plate when you're coming up with, you know, a dessert or main course or something like that. You don't want it all to be soft. So what I really like doing is using one ingredient, but seeing how many different variations of textures you can create from that one ingredient or uh, by using things that grow at the same time of the year. Um, So at the moment we're in rhubarb season. Um, and you can also forage uh, elderflower. So using the elderflower blossom to make a tea, which, which is an amazing combination with rhubarb. Um, so things like that, I really like to, to put together and then working out, okay, if we dehydrate the rhubarb, then we can make something crunchy and crispy. Um, so not just having a muffin with rhubarb in, let's make a jam and put the jam inside like a donut. And then let's make some rhubarb chips to go on top and maybe infuse the elderflower cordial somewhere as well or the block dehydrated blossom so it kind of you don't have to go all over the place it's also I think with age um, chefs and bakers bring it back instead of having you know 12 different ingredients and textures on the plate it's you know what why don't you use one or two ingredients and explore what you can do with those
0: I love the creativity in that and I really wish we weren't virtual right now and that I was sitting in the cafe and I could see.
2: Yeah, it's interesting actually because our bakery is open plan um, for that reason. So people can see where the food is produced, how it's produced um, with next to nothing, no, no plastic. That's our sort of thing that we try and reduce how much stuff we're buying in. So when the farmers bring it in, you know what? I don't need it in bags. Just bring it to me in a container and we'll unload it at the bakery um so i really from when we started bread at the restaurant and the kids would come in with their parents to pick up the bread the flour comes in paper bags we make the bread we put it in a paper bag and we we give it to the consumer and the kids can see that connection and they can meet the person that's producing the food
0: at least it sounds to me like you made the experience not just the you know tasting taking away something and experiencing it it sounds like you've, and I know end to end is a big theme of your business. It sounds like the end to end is of your business and the way you designed it is so that people can experience this, experience it. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think experience comes in, in every shape and form, like to the point where I don't want to be baking through the night at one, two o'clock in the morning. I want the consumer, the customer to get the freshest product that they can. So when they get a loaf of bread, we start baking at 5, 6 a.m. in the morning. Everything is fresh because when you buy a loaf of bread and someone says, oh, it's fresh, some bakeries that could be 12 hours old. So that doesn't seem much, but for me, that's like 12 hours old. That's quite a lot in the in the life cycle of a loaf of bread that only lasts three or four days. Um, so that's really, really important to us to, to bake fresh and also to see the customer's face when you pass them the loaf of bread and it's warm and they hug it like a baby. And it's almost like the smile, like Tasha's like coined it, like we're selling happiness because people instantly are just like, what? This is still warm? Like that's quite unusual. So our locals have realized this and they make sure that there's a bit of a line at nine o'clock because they want that fresh bread. And then we bake throughout the morning. It's not one bake. Generally we'll bake all the way up until about um, 12, 1 PM throughout the morning. So multiple loads um, going through the oven and then smells as well. They're coming in, they're like, so we've finished baking the bread and then we're baking cakes and cookies and things like that throughout the day as well.
0: There's nothing more special than selling happiness. And I want to make sure, Natasha, we give you an opportunity. But it's true. I mean, you can see it. You know, you want to (laughs) hug the baby because it's warm. I mean, how many of us seek warmth and happiness in our lives? And I love that. Your experience provides that for people, especially right now. But I don't want to skip over Natasha because I know that you have some really interesting career experience, some interesting jobs. You were a clown as your first job for children's parties. You have been a teacher throughout the course of your life, and you've surfed your way around the world. As well, you became a vegetarian at the age of seven. Talk to us about the experiences and the skills or the knowledge that you bring to this business that have helped with making the business a success in delivering happiness?
1: Thank you for asking. Um, the vegetarianism, I believe I was born a natural vegetarian in that I didn't enjoy eating meat. And I had a very old school uh, birth mother who who made me um, eat everything on my plate and I couldn't get down from the table until everything was gone. And what happened was I spent my early years chewing on one piece of meat and I would sit there for a couple hours and then eventually it would like, okay, go to bed and I wouldn't get any playtime in the evening. And um, my mother was very stubborn and determined that I would eat meat. And so she kept going with this strategy. And it wasn't until I was literally about seven years old that I think she finally just admitted defeat and said, "Okay, you don't have to eat meat anymore. You don't like it. And so that was a great relief and then after not eating meat um i would go to people's houses or parties i would say i don't eat meat or my mother would tell them and then people started telling me oh you're vegetarian and so then i, I okay that's that's my label if that's what people understand i started just going around telling people i'm vegetarian and then people <laughs> people start to tell you things and say oh why don't you like eating animals and i kind of think oh animals animals and meat oh that's really interesting and then when you grow up like that, you sort of um, end up learning quite a bit. And who can who can not feel good about not eating other animals? And as a child, like most children love animals. I mean, I think most children would not want to eat meat if they knew what they were really eating. And I think a lot of parents don't want their children to know that animals are killed for them to eat meat. Um, and I've seen this conversation happen where uh, kids have asked me, why don't you eat? chicken or something and then my friends who's the mum might say oh you know let's not talk about this now kind of thing so it's very swept under the carpet um, but I became aware of it at quite a young age um, and then I ended up growing up in foster care and um, I had a lot of trauma in my life and I remember going to a psychologist I was sent to a psychologist uh, once a week and the psychologist determined that I didn't have many behaviour problems for a child in foster care, but they decided that me not wanting to eat meat was fussy eating, and this was an embodiment of the trauma I'd been through. So then I was told that I was vegetarian because I was messed up mentally, which is a really interesting take on it. Um, But I didn't pay too much attention to that. Yeah, but that that was the kind of attitude um, growing up in the 80s, the 90s. It was if you don't eat meat, you're not normal. Um, And so thankfully, the whole movement has really the pendulum has swung so much now that we've got doctors going around advocating um, whole food plant based diets. And there's a a lot more knowledge and research going into the benefits of a plant based diet. And um, I I did hear recently of somebody in the community that has an eating disorder and their doctor here in Whistler has actually refused to treat them because they are vegan. And, and that's quite shocking to me. So there is still some of this misunderstanding out there. So we still have work to do. Um, but then going into like uh, my career trajectory, when you grow up in care, the statistics are very, very slim that you will actually get an education and go on to achieve anything considered success. When I was growing up in care, I was pressured into... Um, having an apartment at age 16, the social workers wanted me out of care because I was taking the place of a potentially younger child. Um, But I was very determined that I was not going to be a statistic. I knew that less than 1% of care leavers in the UK in the 90s would go on to university. So I made that my goal. I thought, I'm going to go to university. And when the social workers were talking to me about getting an apartment, they tried to lure me in with the um, attraction of £1,000 to decorate and furnish and thinking that as a 16-year-old, I would be really you know, impressed by that. And my answer was just, but I want to go to university. Can we not put that money towards university? And that was my only goal, was actually just to get to university. And then when I got there, it was kind of like, what am I going to do next? And I saw all my friends that were middle class and quite wealthy with all these travel plans. Oh, we're having a gap year. I thought, well, that's that's a nice thing to do. I probably don't have access to that. And then I learned about teaching English and what a great way it was to travel. Well, I was studying literature. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll I'll do a teaching English certificate. So while I was at university, I took part-time jobs in bars in hospitality. That's how I met Ed. I was working as a waitress in a cocktail bar. Someone wrote a song about it, and Ed was working as a chef.
2: Can you <laughs> food at me.
1: <laughs> so I met Ed, and through this part-time work, I was able to save enough money that when I left my bachelor course, I could go on to do a teaching certificate. And then my plan was to travel the world and teach English. And I did that, and um, with Ed as well. We went to Australia. We went to New Zealand. I also worked in Austria. And then we went back to the UK. And while I was working as a teacher, I started to learn about marketing um, because I had a particular role as an academic course coordinator. I had to market our um, English program to universities and onboard universities to accept our English language students. So I ended up going to lots of events and networking and representing the school. And then I was also given um, a role to rebrand the school as well. And I helped create a logo and um, a mobile learning platform. And so I really got, um, I kind of got access to doing a lot of different things from a business perspective that I didn't really expect to get. So when the opportunity with Ed came along to to open a business, it was quite exciting because I knew that I'd done some marketing and business related work before but in the teaching English world. And luckily I was able to transfer these skills across. So that's kind of how I came to have my roles in the business.
0: (laughs) And I just want to point out, you've presented that in such a nice, clear, linear, this was my path and I traveled along (laughs) it. And I'm not making light of the fact that it was difficult and you are so determined that it's coming through in the beginning of this interview. But what I want to highlight is so many of those things don't necessarily relate to the other. You know, it wasn't and Ed, your story's the same. It could have been a linear path of, you know, get a job, do the training, become a baker or or a chef or a but each of you has these layers to your experience that have made up your body of work, the skill set that you bring to the business. And I so often hear young people um saying, well, I, I I don't know what I wanna be. Or business is saying, I have this idea, but I'm not sure how. And your how is just come together through layers. And I absolutely love that aspect of both your stories. And then you met because Ed decided to throw food at yeah. you. So well done, uh, sir. Um, you got the girl and now you have the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And I wanna ask a question about, especially for you, Natasha, it's clear that, that the business is a combination of your passions, but when you come back to everybody analyzing your trauma and the things, your ways of natural ways of being and doing in the world, I can only imagine how amazing it feels for you to build a business based on something that always was so natural to you, and it's become such a success. And I, and I think that applies for both of you. Natasha, it's about um, honoring the planet and Not harming animals and being, you know, moving from vegetarianism to veganism. And Ed, for you, your path to me is yes, vegetarian and vegan, but I think more it's that toe to tail. I'll let you jump in on that a little bit. And, but this business is so perfectly made for the two of you. But back to that feeling, how did it feel for you when you were able to fully step into that passion in the business?
2: For me, it was really exciting. Like I said, I've been classically trained. Um, sort of French style which is a heavy use of animal products and when I started to move transitioning to being vegan at the restaurant um, I was very lucky my head chef is one of my closest friends um, Nick very talented guy and very open-minded and was you know what instead of doing vegetarian dishes let's make them vegan so we're not taking anything off and making it um, an inferior dish for the customer. So. and straight away for me, especially, I know Nick has an interest in it, but it's like, how can we make this vegan and make it just as good or better? So I think with, now with having the bakery and I can make all the decisions myself as essentially the the head baker, it's more exciting because there's more and more products that we can use and that, you know, give you just as much flavor or or more. Really, I always say it's the one like when you use dairy it can coat your your mouth with cream and milk and things like that but if you use something like coconut milk or or cashew or something like that you get the creaminess and the flavor but it kind of allows room on your taste buds for other flavors to come through so from the sort of scientific sort of gastronomical um, angle it kind of reboosted my energy for food because um, being in food since I was 13, it can become a bit stagnant. And like you said, it's kind of like you just move through this trajectory of, okay, and then I'm going to become a head chef. and I'm going to cook someone else's food that they're telling me that I should do because they want a French or Italian restaurant. And this is the way I have to do it. Whereas now it's kind of Natasha will be like, Hey, have you thought about doing this? Or we'll bring childhood classics that we remember as kids. We make them vegan and we bring them to sort of the Um, sort of the local market here, which is, so for me, it's exciting. It's kind of like the creativity is is endless, really. And like my mum, I could see myself working and being a baker into my 70s, (laughs) if my body allows me to.
1: (laughs) For me, it was really surreal when we opened the bread shop because you have this concept in your mind, and we'd had it in mind for a couple of years that we'd been working towards... And then when you actually have opening day and you see people coming in and it's all built and you've got all the products and all the staff, it's very strange. It's almost like magic. It's um, this thing that you had in your mind is now a reality. And it kind of makes the the differentiation between reality and magic. It kind of becomes one. Um, So that's what I found really interesting about it. It was like, oh, this has been in my head for two years and now it's here and it's tangible. Mm. So that was, it was kind of an interesting experience. You feel like you're going to wake up at some point.
0: Absolutely. How does it feel to live it? And I, and I'm picking on the feel aspect because often when I mentor or work with business owners, it's that almost sense of disbelief that I can live my passion. And I'm pointing to my chest and my heart because there's so much thinking that goes into a business. Sometimes we forget to stop and feel, Mm -hmm. how did it feel for you to live your passion?
1: I think it's very natural for us. It's very instinctive. We generally make a lot of decisions based on our gut instincts and um, not to say that they're always right. Like sometimes we've let our head get in the way of our gut and then we've learned the hard way that some of those decisions were not the right ones. So every time you have a, a failure, you have to train yourself to say it's not a failure. It's a learning experience And uh, (laughs) some of the lessons are really hard um, to swallow. Like if somebody gives you feedback about um, an item, a customer gave us feedback about a cinnamon bun um, last year or the year before. And it was really, really, it felt like a a personal attack when I read this email. What we did is we hiked the Lynn Canyon (laughs) and we totally reconfigured the cinnamon bun recipe um, while we were on the hike and then I found a really <laughs> awesome organic cinnamon supplier uh, from Vancouver that imports directly from Sri Lanka and they donate money to an elephant uh, orphanage as well. So the values are very aligned with us. And now the cinnamon buns are like the best thing ever and then we would never have got to that stage if we hadn't had that feedback from that particular person. Um, and so although I remember reading that email, I just felt like my whole world was crushed um actually you have to just sort of take the learning learn the lesson and and then move on and then you find yourself in a much better place
2: (laughs) I kind of took over that hike it was kind of a lot me just ranting and going but we could do this or we could do this or we could try this way and Tash like, okay let's get into it is that is that what this hike is going to be about
0: she's like I just came here to go for a hike Ed I just came here to go for a hike. I wanted to burn off the I just got ticked off cuz someone didn't like our cinnamon buns. But and I and I love your tenacity and for those of you who heard Natasha laugh a little bit after I asked that question, it was because I physically we can see each other cuz we're recording this where we can see each other on video when she said the only failure is failing to learn from your mistakes. I pretty much did the hallelujah touchdown body language, and that's what she was laughing at. But absolutely, that is so true. I absolutely believe that that is the essence of being an entrepreneur and being open to failing and learning from those those lessons. So going off script, let's talk about a memorable failure that stands out in your mind.
2: Oh, so many. And
0: how you... <laughs> It wouldn't be normal if you said, Oh, we've only had a few. We're fine. We're all great at succeeding. Yes, you are. But what are some of the most memorable failures, maybe one that you can laugh at that you have resolved or one that really took you down? And how did you come back from that?
2: I've, I've got one that is, is very simple and a stupid failure. But I've had so many as a baker, like, I make them on a daily occurrence. But we have a big deck oven at the bakery where it's beautiful glass windows and you can see 50 loaves of bread being baked at one time. And we have a, a integrated loader where you put the bread on, the dough on, and you slide it in and they all drop off beautifully onto the to the hearth stone. And one day I was loading, talking away, trying to multitask, doing multiple things. And I went to push in the, the loader and I was like, oh, it's broken, it won't go in. But what had happened is I hadn't paid attention and there was already six loaves where I was trying to push it in. So I just ended up compressing 12 loaves together and just making these morphed like crazy loaves of bread. So for me, the takeaway from that was sometimes you've just got to take yourself out of being the business owner and just focus on the task in hand. And I think, like I said, there's so many mistakes that you do make as a baker and being hands-on that it's important afterwards to be like, okay, what did I learn from that? How can I prevent that happening again? Because otherwise you can just be in this constant cycle. You're like, especially with with baking and sort of working with pastry and things like that, it's, it's very calculated and scientific. And that's why I loved being a chef for so many years because you can cook with your heart. Whereas this is like, if you need six grams of something, it has to be six grams. You can't be like, oh, I just put a pinch of this and a dash of that in there. So, so that's, that's my sort of main mistakes that happen. But then it can, as well with vegan baking is a lot of the time you can't just read it in a book or look at it online. You have to sort of be even more creative and push forward and create these sort of menu items that someone hasn't had before or they've had, but using animal products.
0: Unique doesn't always come easy. Actually, in fact, unique rarely ever comes easy Mm -hmm. so i love that story i'm not even going to admit to how many times i've stood in front of the oven of a banana loaf that was baking and going why isn't it rising oh because yet again i forgot to put in the baking soda so i understand the uh science scientific (laughs) aspect of baking painfully natasha let's talk about the aspects of the business for you front of house strategy marketing the things that you take on what's the biggest oops, or ooh, I blew that up good story that you have to share with us?
1: There have been a lot of um, sort of when you're, when you're trying to hire for staff, I've ended up hiring baristas who don't actually like coffee. And this is a nightmare because they, they have all this experience on their resume. I've worked here, I've worked there. Some of them have even said they've managed coffee houses. They've worked for coffee roasteries. Like people can look really amazing on paper, and even get through interview. And so I've started to learn how to prize out of them what they really think. So I'll often ask them things like, how do you take your coffee? And what's your favourite cafe in Whistler? And why do you like that cafe? And based on their response, I can tell if they drink coffee, because they'll just naturally say something like, um, oh, I usually drink tea. Or I like the blue latte, at blends. And I'll say, what is that blue latte? I don't know, but it's blue. And that to me just tells me someone that has no real passion or understanding or interest in an espresso bar, and therefore wouldn't be the right fit for us because we want people that actually quality check. And so in the morning, we have um, a dial-in procedure for our espresso where the barista is expected to weigh a coffee shot put it through the machine, see how long it runs for, taste it and decide if it needs some adjustment. You might need a a finer grind or a coarser grind on the coffee, or you might need to add more coffee to the the group head, or you might need to run it for less time or something. There'll be some adjustments. It's not just push a button and go. I mean, you can get automatic machines and there are some very successful companies that run with that. Um, But for a specialty coffee shop, uh, which we kind of come under the remit of, you know, if you have really good bread, you've also got to have really good coffee, and so then you need people that will make really good coffee, and so it's it's sort of working out how to find those people. Um, so I've definitely learned a lot about interviewing, and and getting a, a true idea of what somebody's like, and I also find it really helpful to interview people in groups. So you might do three interviews back to back and then you can kind of compare people. If you do kind of one person one day, one person another day, you don't always see the comparison. And then getting them in to do a trial shift and saying to them, you know, make me a latte, you know, this is how I make it. Now I want you to make it just as good. And then sometimes I've had people come in and just do it so much better and then I can do it. And like, okay, right, this is just a no-brainer, you're hired. Um, So it's putting people through tests, building in those processes, how to test people, because they say it's much easier to hire than to fire. Um, And you don't really want to fire anyone.
0: And it's very clear to me how meticulous you both are in your crafts, because there's multiple in your business. And I heard you, speaking of multiples, I've heard you use different positioning labels I'm going to get technical in my own craft for a minute as to is it a bakery is it a coffee shop is it a what is bread and are you creating your own niche within your industry
1: bread is an (laughs) award-winning 100% plant-based organic sourdough bakery with bread small baked goods and a specialty espresso bar. That's, that's, that's the concept and that's our statement. And, and we have two different markets here. We have our local families that come in, they buy a couple loaves of bread a week for the family. And those are the people that will see us through the pandemic, through any recession, they're just the solid bread people. And then we have our tourists that come to Whistler, the day trippers, the second homeowners, weekend warriors, who come up for the day for a hike, bike, ski, and they want a cinnamon bun or a cookie and a coffee. Um, so we have those two target markets that we cater for. being at the base of a gondola, um, we have to take advantage of that that kind of footfall. Um, so we have that alongside the bread. but I would say we're definitely primarily a bread shop above what anything else.
0: I was going to I was going to ask our listeners if they heard the difference and how clear you are on your target audiences. And you've done a good job in identifying what I often say is, what are the problems you solve for your target audiences, plural? Because very few businesses that I come across ever have just one target audience, and you clearly delineated your two. So that's, I'm going to throw it out to our Listeners, as a challenge, are you that clearly delineated in understanding your audiences and what buckets they fall into?
1: I can get even more. I can, I can nail it down to the T. So um, it, when I have the time, I will often arrange a day of calls, about 10 phone calls in a day to our regular customers that order online. And these people are my regular customers. They love me. They want to help me. They're like our friends that come and say hi every week. And I'll ask them uh, questions about their lifestyle, um, their habits. And what I've actually deduced is our target market is mothers um, with slightly older children. They they might have an electric vehicle. They have a second home somewhere else. They take multiple holidays a year. They have a dog. And so I've managed to find these aspects because if you're creating like a, a Facebook ad campaign, you can actually really, really hone in on those specific demographics. Um, so this information is really helpful because then you can say, who's my champion customer? This is their profile. And I've noticed that pattern in many of our customers. And and obviously they're out athletic, they're cool mums, they do lots of sports, they love the outdoors, that kind of thing. It's like, okay, that's my target market, where are these people hanging out? You know, what groups are they in? Uh, What newspapers are they reading? Or what websites they visiting? And then I can find more of those people (laughs) Um, and attract them. And it's a win for everybody because they want our bread.
0: I love too, that you understand that someone who comes in for bread, or at least in my mind, if I were to come up for a loaf of sourdough, which I will do when I come up to mountain bike, I know from this conversation, but what I love is that there's a magic that happens in your shop. You walk in for a loaf of bread and it's like a whole world is open to you. Um, I don't know if it's appropriate to use the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, but that's what I feel like I'm going to walk into. And I'm probably going to walk away with more... Products than I could ever eat in a day or two while it stays fresh. But that's super exciting. And you're both nodding. So I'm just going to let you comment on that.
2: Yeah, we definitely have uh, customers that come in and they're like, I didn't plan on this. Or they've said they're coming to Whistler and all their friends in the neighborhood are like, Can you get me this? And they come in with a big list and they're like, I promise it's not all for me. Or I remember pre COVID in our first year, a lady who had been on holiday for the week. Came in with it. Uh, she was from Hong Kong, and she came in with an empty suitcase and filled a suitcase with bread.
1: In the bakery. she was like,
2: "I'm on my way to the airport now. This is my hand luggage." And she took about eight loaves of sourdough to a to back for her friends in Hong Kong. So um, yeah, there's definitely a few customers that come in and they kind of have fun with it. And we we support a lot of local artisans, so we have sort of recipe books and ceramics and. Um, jams and things like that. So there's other things on offer that you can sort of like, you know, bring a bit of bread home.
0: You segued fantastically into community. And Natasha, you clearly understand your customers, which I know you believe are your community. Can you share with us the role that community and its importance in that it played in the creation and success of your business. Because I believe, and that's why we named this first season community or themed it community, is because we believe that it takes a community to build a village. Talk to us about that.
1: Well, you know, it was the community that asked us to open a bread shop. So from the get-go, that was um, very clear that you need the community support um, in any business, really. So we already had that in a lot of ways. Word of mouth is one of the most powerful marketing mediums. And I feel like social media is just an extension of word of mouth, really. So you definitely want to find people in the community that will champion you and your brand, um, however you do that. I also think you have to be careful because if you give some customers special treatment, um, what we've found is they'll often expect more than that and so you kind of have to have some boundaries as well with certain folks when they get a little bit too chummy chummy with you (laughs) um however it's it's definitely worthwhile things like we train the staff that they have to say hello how are you to everyone that comes in the bakery even the bakers in the kitchen have to be comfortable with talking to the customers um so we really want the customers to feel like they're they're stepping home into a family environment when they come in. And the pandemic was very interesting back in March 2020 when we totally shut down like all food and beverage businesses um, and, and shops and things. We found that people would wait outside in the line and see people they knew and from a distance be able to see a familiar face and say hi. And actually the line up proved to be such a hub for the community in a time when they couldn't go to each other's houses and even kind of going for walks outside was a little bit scary. But to see each other outside in the the Creekside village, um, one person did actually leave us a Google review and said it had been really key to his mental health, having the routine of coming to get bread and seeing familiar faces um, at a time he was kind of locked up in his house. And that was so touching because I always imagined that we would have a community space. Unfortunately, square footage in Whistler is so expensive that we, we weren't able to have a big space with lots of chairs and tables, but we've still managed in our own little way to create a sense of community. People see each other, people come regularly, um, and they've got to know us. And it's really awesome. And they they follow us along on social media and comment, and we've had giveaways and and try to engage. We ask our um, neighbors and community a lot of questions and they give us feedback on on recipes and things.
2: I think it's also for us as well, which has been a benefit of COVID, is that we do contact tracing. Um, anyone that comes in the, in the shop, we ask them for their name and phone number. So even though you might have recognized before someone's face, it's now we can greet them with their first name. And I think when you walk in and you say, you know, hey, how are you? You know, hey, Ed, how are you? Like, hey, Tash, how are you? How's your day going? You kind of build more of a a relationship with them as well. Um, So I think that's been really good now because the people that are coming in regularly, we, you know, either we don't need to ask them because they've ordered through our online shop and we already have their details. um, So it makes the transition even quicker for them. Um, Or, you know, you can just have these small, short conversations while they're waiting for their coffee. So that's been really nice as well.
0: It's so clear that the customer experience is intentionally designed by both of you and that you seek to provide a very specific experience. I love that. Mm -hmm. Any tips for folks building out a customer? Like, how how do you go about designing a customer experience? Natasha, you've done a great job of of telling us, speaking to your customers is really important on an ongoing basis because it allows you to refine that experience but how do you go about building a great customer experience from the ground up?
2: I think it's important not to try and copy people or mimic something. But I think like what you said, it comes back to feeling. So go think about places that you go to and that creates that feeling. Like for me, I go into like a lot of the influence of the bakery came back to breweries. I'm a big craft beer fan <laughs> and I like going into certain breweries and it being open and clean and fresh and modern like simple all these sorts of words like when i look at a menu board because a lot of the time in a brewery it's quite far away it's easy to spot you know and it's and it's just simple okay i want that beer it's that percent you know it's got that grain in it um so for me a lot of the influence came from that and we uh, you know like you said earlier i don't like the word foodies but we love eating out we love going to restaurants and and, and experience in hospitality. So I think it came back to the places that we've been to around the world. What do we like about those those places and how they made us feel and how the staff made us feel? So we were like, when people come in, we want everyone to greet them. Like, for example, you go to some sushi restaurants. As soon as you walk in, they say, hello, like all the kitchen, hello, goodbye. And you're like, wow. It's like, you just leave with a with a smile on your face Um, because you feel like you're important or if a customer comes into our shop and they've been having trouble with their sourdough if they want to ask me a quick question like you know a quick tip or what are you making there it's very open and sort of we try to help people through social media with tutorials um, and are very active on Instagram if people have questions Um, and also this year um, we added consultation to our website as well so giving back in that way and helping other businesses.
1: But On, on, the, on the Instagram, um, we showcase, a, we give a little bit of a, an opening to our personalities and our life. It's more than just, this is the bread we make, this is our product, because people actually want to connect with who's behind the brand. And, you know, like us sitting on this podcast, anyone that's listening to this is probably going to feel like they know us a little bit now. Um, even though I've never met them. I don't know who they are. And it's kind of like this. We put um, a lot of biography stuff on our website. There's Ed's vegan journey blog. There's my vegan journey blog. There's how we open the bakery. Interesting facts about us, photographs of us. Um, and, and it's important that people have access to that because how can you expect to you know, create community if you're not willing to show who you are? Um, And so people will be attracted to that. And and that's kind of one of the first steps. Sometimes I see really interesting products or services and I look them up on, on the web and I can't find anything about them. And it feels cold and it feels like I'm just a customer and it's transactional. And actually, if you want to build community, you have to connect with people. And that means putting yourself out there a bit, getting in front of a camera or at least giving up some some personal information. You know, you don't have to tell people everything. You don't have to have a camera in all of your life, but enough for people to, to feel like they can connect with you.
0: One of the things that, that I'm picking up on as a theme and really pun not intended, what you're both tuned into and phenomenal at and have been in building and planning and iterating on your business is pulling the ingredients that you love from other places, be it your travels, be it breweries, be it other restaurants, be it other products. You know, it's looking outside your own industry and what you know and are familiar with. It's clear to me that you're very good at taking ingredients and mixing them to create your own alchemy of success.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. I think as well, like it's been hard the last year with the pandemic, but just looking at Pinterest, um, you get the visual, but you don't get that feeling, you don't get it to your heart. Um, so I think it's, it's a, you need a mixed media. You need to go and feel and, um, and smell and like really let your senses, if you're looking to create a a business, I think that's really important.
0: Let's talk about business communities for a minute. So in the sea to sky corridor, part of our community is not just our customers. It's not just our team. It's, it's the support, I call it scaffolding around us. What are a few communities that you'd advise sea to sky entrepreneurs that are just starting out or iterating on their business to build improvements into it? What are some business communities or resources to check out to help and support you in that journey? What would you recommend or who would you recommend?
1: Well, I'd probably start with the Whistler Chamber of Commerce. And becoming a member, it gives you a lot of access to resources um, like they do webinars and they have things like discounted uh, seasons passes for your employees, lots of trainings like um, food safety and that kind of thing that you might need if you're a food and beverage operator. Um, So the Whistler Chamber is great and they're always very supportive of their members. And they also have their own Whistler Excellence Awards as well. So that's a good starting point. And then there are some other groups, obviously Small Business BC, and I understand that June is like the month of free education as well, which is really awesome. And then there are some federal groups like the CFIB have been very, very amazing. Like the last year they've had so much guidance. It's the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and the membership is dependent on how many employees you have. And I would definitely recommend becoming a member um, for their advice and webinars and trainings. And you can just literally call them up. Like when the pandemic happened, I just phoned them up and said, we've had to shut down our bakery. What do I do? And they said, well, you have to lay off all your staff temporarily and do this, and do that. And I just kind of went, okay, I just needed someone to call and give me like a plan in um, in those unprecedented times that no one had ever been through, let alone a new business owner. And so that was great. And then um, there are a lot of other like groups on Slack, for example. I'm a, a member of a group, the BC Impact Group. I'm also taking a course with Decade Impact. That's a consultancy group in Vancouver. And they're helping us get to 80 points because one of our business goals this year is to become B Corp certified. Um, so there are lots of groups. kind of depends what your industry is and what your goals are. But uh, if you get onto LinkedIn is a great place Mm -hmm. to start looking up professionals in and around your area that can help you. And I find that people are usually very open to helping. If you just ask someone, does anyone know where I can find X, Y, Z on LinkedIn? Someone will usually say, yeah, you should join this group.
0: Yeah, just ask. Sometimes we forget. I just need to ask. I just need to throw it out on a random social media feed and ask. And it's amazing what comes back. So speaking of business organizations and support, I have a surprise for you today. Oh. I have a recording from Nicola Jones from Futurepreneur, and I'm going to play it for you.
1: Hey, Ed and Natasha, Nikki here from Futurepreneur Canada. Just wanted to say a big congratulations once again for winning the Youth Entrepreneur Award at Small Business BC. Um, I nominated for you for this award because I think you've built something really incredible with bread up in Whistler. I love that you are all about sustainability, all about building a community around your business, and you're doing this through sourdough, which, as you both know, is a passion of mine as well. So I really, really think that you're up to some incredible things. And I love that you won this award with Small Business BC this year. Um, congratulations once again from Nikki, the whole team at Futurepreneur, we're all behind rooting for you. And really, really just wanted to say a big congrats once again and looking forward to the future. I'm looking forward to seeing you go through that B Corp certification soon. Thank you so much. Wow, that's so cool. We always wondered who nominated us. Oh, you didn't know? (laughs) No, No. we never knew. We're like, who is this person that keeps nominating us? Because uh, we got nominated for lots of different awards. And we had to do all the applications. You couldn't just choose one and send it in. You had to do all of them. And I remember thinking like, oh God, I haven't got time for this. It's so much work. I hope it's worth it. (laughs) Well, it was. Um, So it was Nicola. Thank you, Nicola. (laughs) We made it. (laughs) You
0: absolutely did. So congratulations on your award this year. Um, Talk to... Us about what it meant to you to win Best Youth Entrepreneur, which was the category you took gold in this year.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah, we just snuck in there. I was thirty-five, 35 just when we applied. My family were like, "Youth Entrepreneur? Ooh, scraping it there." But um, we met
1: the criteria. We met
2: the criteria exactly. No, it felt felt really, really good, especially to get that recognition. You know, throughout BC. Um, it was, it was really good because it has has been a lot, of, a lot of hard work, and still is a lot of hard work. But just to to get that feedback um, from the sort of business community, um, it is amazing. And that, like we say, it's it's a win for the for the vegan community as well to sort of show other businesses that might be a bit worried, like how is the community gonna, you know, receive this as uh, as a business. But we are strong advocates that if the business is good enough and the concept is good enough that people will support you. You know, most people that come to our shop aren't vegan, um, but the product's good and we are all inclusive. We we don't want to, you know, it's, it's for everyone to enjoy. Everyone eats plants. So by supporting us, they're supporting a vegan um, business. And then we can therefore help our community and other sort of organizations as well. We definitely didn't open a bakery to be millionaires it's sort of for the greater good you know how we how we can help the the people the planet and the animals that's always tasha always says that it comes back to that sort of trifecta of sort of like when we make a decision is it going to help those three points and and if it does then it's a good decision
0: what's something great and unexpected that has come from doing all the work natasha when you're like oh my gosh i'm filling out all these applications and all the questions beyond it, or as you were going through it, what are some unexpected things that came for you or positive things that happened for the business as a result of going through the process of this awards competition?
1: One thing we didn't know when we started making sourdough and vegan baked goods was that some of the processes are quite innovative. For example, we did a lot of experimenting with egg replacements Um, and looking into the different properties of eggs and how to replicate them because there's no one-on-one replacement for egg. It has about six different properties. And if you're looking at replacing egg, you have to think about what's the purpose of egg in this recipe? Is it binding something? Is it glazing? Is it adding an aerated element like in a mousse? And then what could be a replacement for that? And all of this research and experimentation actually qualifies us for a scientific research and experiment uh, grant or educational research development grant. It's called SHRED internationally. And um, somebody came to us when they heard about us in Small Business BC and said, so do you do lots of experimenting? I was like, yeah. And they're like, is there much information out there on, on some of these things? I was like, we couldn't find anything, so that's why we had to do our own experimenting. And they said, oh, you know, you could actually be eligible for this grant. And, and we are, so we've applied for it. So we're actually going to get back some some money um, that we didn't know we were eligible for. And we would never have found out about this if we hadn't gone into small business BC. So there are some hidden financial gains to be had and obviously some media opportunities that have come along as well. Um, and the community always love it when Whistler gets a mention, especially the business community here. It's nice to put Whistler on the map. Um, one of my big, hairy, audacious goals or b-hags is to make Whistler, a, an well, be part of making Whistler an tourism destination because I know we can't rely on skiing forever and biking's great, but there are so many bike trails here. I don't think anyone has biked them all. And I feel like sometimes that's an excuse to cut down more forest that I'm really passionate about protecting. So if we can transition Whistler to become not only an extreme sports destination, but a place where people can learn about living sustainably in different ways, then I'm, I'm super passionate about that. And it's kind of kick-started me. It's given me a bit more credibility now we've won this award to talk to certain people about this and, um, and get the community together on some projects that will lead to that vision. So, yeah, it's, it's been quite quite cool and exciting and made me start thinking about taking our business interests in a slightly different direction. B Corp would be the first stage in that.
0: You hit on a really interesting point and it was also part of my experience in this year's awards of I was in the innovation category. And I think that it's really important for entrepreneurs to explore what innovation actually means. Because in your industry, you said it, and also in mine, uh, which is branding and strategy, is people don't tend to think there's much innovation because innovation gets tagged into the technology. And these days it's AI and all the things that aren't, I wanna say that aren't human. It's, we're, so, we, we're so building outside of ourselves, but I love that you were able to tap into shred as a bakery, as scientists. That's what I keep hearing. You guys are scientists in the way you bring ingredients together, the way you understand your product. So I love that you highlighted that. And I would encourage our listeners to think about how are we innovating? Because I think it's a really interesting, it's a really powerful opportunity to open up your business because innovation is anything that creates a change and often for the better. And I think that's really important. What tips and advice can you offer our listeners who are going through the awards process, whether it be about filling out the applications and differentiating your business and being clear on that or delivering a good pitch? What are some tips that you would offer to help people make it through the rounds of a business competition like the Small Business BC Awards?
2: I think believing in yourself and your concept. And then when it comes to the pitch, we we practiced quite a few times. It, it's, 10 minutes actually went really quickly. We were really nervous about it. But Tash and I are really big fans of Dragon's Den in the UK. (laughs) We watched a lot of them. So we were kind of like, okay, what information do they need or going to want? Or, I mean, we had to do it via Zoom. So it's a little bit more difficult because we feel we could have bribed them, you know, with their taste buds a bit more if we were there in person and just given them cinnamon buns and cookies and bread and just let them eat for 10 minutes. So we weren't able to do that. So we had to be a little bit creative. But I think. What they really saw was our passion, like we like we've sort of spoken about today. It's kind of putting across what we want to try and achieve with our business, and and that I think that was the main thing for us. Really, like we didn't we we could have probably got into the figure the numbers more, and we have seen good good growth um, with our revenue and everything. Um, We didn't touch on that because, like I said, ten minutes went so quickly. So I would say probably get a bit of that in. That was some of the feedback
1: and that we should have a, an infographic to to represent that. They wanted some visuals, even though they couldn't eat anything, they wanted some visual representation of what we were talking about. But, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we still won. And <laughs> and then you look at, like, why did we win? It wasn't because we had a really pretty infographic. It's because we're mission-led, and our life is our work, and our work is mm-hmm. our life, and not in a bad way. I, I would recommend any entrepreneur looking at any type of business or award or anything really think about how are you of benefit to this planet and society uh, maybe you can't do everything it's hard to be perfect but find a good cause that you're passionate about and make sure that your business is in alignment with those values and contributes to to leaving that cause better than when you found it and that's what the b corp uh, mission is about it's about leaving the planet in a better place than you found it or society. Um, and so I think if you have that behind you, you will get out of bed at 5am and you will go do your thing to save the world, uh, do your business, do the boring stuff, do the hard stuff, learn the hard lessons and win the awards because that's what motivates us. It's all about the people, planet and mainly the animals to be honest for us. Um, so I think it's, it's nice to have that behind you because... At the end of the day, why is anyone going to care about your business if it's not of service in some way, doing some good? So I just think that that is the way business needs to go, and and the successful businesses are the ones that are thinking like that. And and you can see that if you look at a company like Nestle, who had a terrible rep ten years ago for doing terrible things, now they're actually on track to be a leader in sustainability. And people might not realise that because they're not following what they're doing. But uh, in 10 years time, they'll probably be like one of the most sustainable beneficial companies out there, um, which sounds crazy. But they've realized that they couldn't continue just making money at at the cost of Mm -hmm. people and planet that they had to make changes to to Mm -hmm. ensure their success. And we're starting to see things like Starbucks uh, making pledges to to go completely plant based in the next 10 or 20 years. Well, we're already doing it, by the way. So that's why we won the award. Um, (laughs) But it gets a lot of media attention when they say this. This is actually what gets people excited. It does. Absolutely. And I know we're going long.
0: And thank you for giving us your time. And it's almost like you could see the two questions that I really wanted to dig into you with you. It's almost like you saw me scrolling. And I know you can't do that. But I went back to and you perfectly segued mission-based business I know that living a sustainable life and being ethical entrepreneurs are important to you. So I wanted to make sure I asked about that and asked you how these values and these passions have shaped how you've built and run your business. And I'm gonna go a little deeper in that because you have talked about that in the broader sense, but in the day-to-day doing, I work with many business owners and their teams and we work on crafting those values so they're crystal clear but where I find they often trip is then translating them into integrating them into their business and putting them into action. Can you give us some specific examples of how you live and breathe your values so that your team and, and or teach your team how to live and breathe your values?
1: Well, one of the things that we had to do um, and it's a concrete example of our values is we plant a tree for every coffee that we sell. And this was a new initiative during COVID. The health inspector said they didn't want us to use reusable cups anymore. They gave us a health permit that said single-use containers only. And up until that point, we'd always encouraged our staff, they were trained to say, is that for here instead of, is that to go? Because we just felt that the whole culture of coffee drinking was so on the tipping point of, is that to go, is that to go? I'll get a coffee to go, to go, to go. Where's the for here? Where's the reusable cup? Where's the sustainability piece? Um, And so we had been like giving discounts to people using their own cup, encouraging people if they're sitting outside, take a ceramic cup, bring it back. We'll wash it up. And then it was COVID. And it's like, oh, God, you can't touch anything that's been touched by a customer. You'll die. So we thought we're going to have to do takeout for everything. Horrible. Hate takeout. So what can we do? that's gonna make this in alignment with people, planet and animals. And I took the Cambridge Sustainability Institute of Leadership Certificate, (laughs) big mouthful. I took that during the lockdown um, as a part-time course I'm studying. And through that process of mentorship and tuition, I developed this concept of we'll plant a tree for every coffee we sell. I looked at the metrics before COVID less than 10%, I'm so sad to say, less than 10% of customers were using their own cup. So that was an opt-in policy, and it wasn't doing very well. Now we plant a tree for everybody that buys a coffee. You can't opt in or out. It just happens. (laughs) And we didn't charge more for the coffee. We took it out of our profits. And the great thing about this is it's helping to offset carbon, and it's having a much bigger impact, not only because we're putting back into the planet what we've taken in the production costs, the deforestation, the transportation of those paper cups. Um, Also like the the end life cycle. We don't even know if they get composted. That's a whole other area that I won't go into right now. Um, Also the reusable cups. Are they actually that sustainable? What are they made of? I've seen people open a car door and about 20 roll out. Everyone's got kitchen cupboards full of them. I've hiked mountains and found them in bushes. People have forgotten about them. You know, you kind of have to think about all of this and you think, how can we actually have a much bigger impact? And how do we get the the staff on board with this? Mm. Well, we have a metrics on our espresso machine of how many coffees we've planted. It's on our website and we celebrate milestones. Hooray, we got to a thousand trees or I test the staff. How many trees have we planted? And the staff are really good now. If somebody challenges the fact that we don't take their reusable cup at the moment, They say, oh, you know, we have started planting a tree and we've planted 9,504 trees as to date of this episode. Um, And the staff are aware of that and they can check the metrics because it's displayed in front of them. So it's doing things like that. We have a five minute briefing before we start every shift. So the staff are all on board and just on the spot testing of certain things helps keep them on their toes and um, reminds them of of our values and, and what we're about.
0: Mm-hmm. I think making them visible and not, do, I'm not just saying plastering them on the wall, but visible in how they show up in your business and how your values provide value to your team, to your community, to the world mm-hmm. and celebrating that you do a good job of that whole, a great job of that whole cycle.
2: Knowledge is power. So like we can, like Tash said, give them a briefing every morning, start the day, like on a positive this is what's going on. This is where we're at. This is what we're doing. As um, soon as a customer comes in, if they have a question, generally the st- everyone knows what's happening and what we're doing.
0: So to work towards a wrap up, I want to give you 15 or so seconds. Not that I need any convincing and I would be surprised if many people needed any convincing after this interview. If you need convincing from my part, please just go to the website and check out Ed's amazing photos of... They're amazing products. I know that my mouth started watering as soon as I looked at their food photos, but I really want to provide an opportunity for you to cur- encourage the rest of BC to head to Whistler and check out bread. So give us
1: a pitch.
2: You want to do it? She's got it. She's got it. She's like, I'm doing it. <laughs>
1: Well, if you don't know anything about Whistler, not only is it North America's best ski resort and mountain bike destination, but it has other stuff to do too. And one of the things you can do is take the first stop at the first gondola you come to in Creekside, Whistler, and come to the bakery for delicious bread, baked fresh, warm when you pick it up. You can't get that anywhere else in Whistler, by the way. Um, And try some cinnamon buns, some cookies, some cakes, maybe a little for focaccia at lunchtime, take some hummus and olives home for your bread. And why not order ahead online on our site, edsbread.com, E-D-S-B-R-E-D.com. And when you go to pre-order, so you can guarantee that when you get up to Whistler at the end of the day, you've got your bread and your cinnamon buns ready to go, you can use the discount code SBBC2021. That's for Small Business BC 2021. Use that code on our website and that will give you 15% off your first order. So you can come up to Whistler and get a discount, pick up some delicious small baked goods and maybe take a hike.
2: And you'll see us as well because we're always there. Say
1: hi. And they're always smiling.
0: You are always smiling. I love that. Um, That is one of the tightest pitches I have ever heard. So... No surprise that you won the award this year. And I, while you were saying picking up a warm loaf of bread in the morning, I was thinking about a little narrative, and I'm going to riff on this, so I'm sorry, but I have to yeah. run with it. But having previously been a snowboarder, is I imagine someone picking up a warm lo- loaf of sourdough and, you know, going up the galondola, having a bite, sliding that warmth in their jacket as they hit seventh heaven. And yes, for those of you who aren't local, there is an area on the mountain called cloud nine and seventh heaven up at horseman's and it's freezing up there some days so you have your own replacement hot water bottle to stuff in your jacket and snack on and feed the whiskey jacks at the bottom of that line so i love how all the experiences are right there lots of products what is each of your to wrap us up what is your most recommended thing that people have to try from bread
1: for me, it's um, an oat milk latte accompanied with a pecan cinnamon bun with cream cheese frosting. But I have a sweet tooth. For Ed, it would be a loaf of bread.
2: Yeah, I think it's going to – it will probably be like the sesame sesame uh, sourdough, like the umami that you get from the, the roasted sesame. I'm quite – I cook – bake the bread a little bit darker than what people are used to, but the flavour that you get from the crust is – it's crazy. It actually does make you salivate. And also another good fact is two slices of sourdough is 25% of your daily protein. So I always say have eight slices and then you're good.
1: And that's a whole loaf.
0: <laughs> um, it's safe to say that my wife will use those statistics because she loves bread and we're both athletes. So that's going to work really. Maybe that will be the new ultra runner food.
1: When Iron Man came to Whistler, we were freaking out that the highway would be closed and nobody would get to the bakery and we didn't know how much bread to make because we didn't know if we would be busy. All the Iron Men and, and women, Iron Women, they were all coming in the bakery. We didn't <laughs> know that they love good quality carbs. So it's definitely the, the ultra runners bread of choice is, is sourdough bread made by Ed.
0: Love that. I could talk to you both all day And I thank you for the extra time you've taken with us. And there's so much gold in this. I can't wait to listen back. I'm excited for our listeners all across BC and beyond to listen to this. So thank you for sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, your stories, and your bright and vibrant energy. It's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast.
1: Thanks so much. Yeah,
2: thank you. It's been real fun.
0: How much greatness was there packed into that episode, folks? Thanks again to Ed and Natasha for sharing their stories and all of the business lessons that they've learned in building their 100% plant based business. This top three takeaways segment is to put the inspiration you just heard into action and hopefully generate some new traction for your business. Our producer, Darren, is my co host for this segment, and he brings in another perspective. His role at Small Business BC is the content coordinator, and every day he's immersed in the stories and learnings of small businesses. Hey, Darren, what'd you think of this week's episode?
3: Hey, Carly, I loved that interview. And I think my top takeaway coming out of it is that I immediately want to head up the Sea to Sky Highway and get myself some of that bread.
0: Right? Well, I did that just yesterday and I was so gutted that the shop is closed until June 16th. So yeah, right. But I, but I knew that going up there because I reached out to them and I knew it was going to be closed, but I was still so disappointed and, but it makes sense. They're taking some time off to get ready for their busy summer season. So what was your first takeaway? What stood out to you in this episode?
3: Ed and Natasha, they're such a powerhouse duo in the way they split the work, the complete mastery that they have of every aspect of the business, how they infuse the business with their own personality in ways that are entirely on brand for them. It's no wonder that they've made such rapid progress and become such a hub for the community up there in Whistler Creekside.
0: I do remember Natasha saying something along the lines of, it's not who's in charge, but who's in charge of what. It's clear to me that they both understand their roles and metrics of the aspects of the business that they're each in charge of. And that's super important, especially when you have multiple owners or multiple business partners, multiple leaders, everybody needs to know what their role is. And that leads me to leading you to what I know is your next takeaway.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's all about testing and measuring. Um, they started doing this right from the beginning, testing and measuring the demand for their product, you know, the sourdough bread before fully diving into getting the business going. They had the proof of concept way before they ever took on a storefront and, you know, they took this grassroots approach to selling the bread on social media first. It was this community of fans who voiced their demand and ultimately led them to creating the bakery.
0: And this isn't the first time that you and I have heard this in this season. We're going to find out in a future episode with Sadaf Rahimi of... Shark. Oh, man, that word catches me every time. Charcuterie. Darren, can you say it for me, please?
3: Charcuterie.
0: Vancouver. Charcuterie Vancouver. There we go. Sorry, Sadaf. When she started selling her products to her friends on Instagram. And it was relatively the same experience of, she was just testing to see what worked and everybody fell in love with it. And the momentum picked up so insanely quick that it launched the whole business. So speaking of products that people love so so much, this leads well into one of my takeaways from this episode. And it's when Ed said that they were selling happiness. That pretty much bounced right up in front of me. And this reminds me of the importance of getting really clear on what you're really selling to your clients and customers. So at Bread, they sell happiness. At Big Bold Brand, we sell clarity. And Small Business BC provides guidance.
3: Yeah, throughout this episode, it's clear that Ed and Natasha recognize this, and they built the whole brand experience around this. They've put a ton of thought into their customer experience and how they can deliver happiness in every interaction that people have with them.
0: So here's what I know about building a great brand experience. It's about making your customers fall in love with your business and your brand. And you cannot do that if you're not crystal clear on your ideal customers or clients.
3: Definitely. Like anyone at any stage of business will tell you that it's really hard to design if you don't know who your ideal customer or clients are.
0: And in this episode, and I hope our listeners picked up on this, If you didn't go back and listen, Natasha provided a genius way to intimately get to know Bread's local customers by taking the time to call them, having a conversation with them and get to know them and ask them about what they love, what their life is like, what they love about their products, what products they would like to see. And she is a master at documenting that and threading it through the business and creating a great experience and giving their customers ultimately what they want and need. So for our listeners, whether you send out surveys, have casual or planned conversations, you ask for testimonials, or even regularly reviewing your Google reviews or a combination of the above, it's absolutely critical to your business success and building a big, bold brand for your business that you create detailed client profiles and share them with everyone on your team so so they know how to take care of your clients. All right. What else jumped out at you as a takeaway to put into action, Darren?
3: Okay, I'm going to start off with small beginnings, and what I mean by that is I was really taken by Ed describing how the business started and how much it reflected the common experience that a lot of our community members at here at SBBC have. He talked about starting what felt like a secret bread club through Facebook, and you know, if you look at them a few years later, they're running this award-winning bakery that. It's become a real hub for their community. And the takeaway that I have from that is that, you know, no matter how small your business may seem when you're starting off, don't be discouraged about that starting point. If you're dedicated to following through and if you're passionate enough about the business, you can get to where you need to be.
0: Oh, my God. And who doesn't want to be a part of a community group, a secret club, maybe a not so secret club? but an insider on something bigger than themselves and them talking about the opportunity that the pandemic provided to create mental health for people because they would see their neighbors in line in a safe and socially distance, distance manner, but they were still getting out to see the people in their community. I absolutely fell in love with that part of the story. Um, I think I almost, I think I almost cried when they shared um, the story about the gentleman talking about how they contributed to his mental health.
3: The idea of the exclusivity of like the secret bread club—it it's scalable to all sorts of and sizes of businesses. I mean, it reminded me of back in the day how Disney would pioneer this thing called the Disney Vault, and they realised that if you just made your movies available for a short period of time before taking them off sale, it was an incredibly powerful marketing move. And I mean, that sucks for people who just want to you know, buy the jungle book on DVD and it's not on sale, but you know, they, they won't make that same mistake next time that it does actually go on sale. They'll pick it up straight away.
0: Yeah. I remember my mother waiting years for some of her favorites to come out to be able to get them for me and my sisters. So it was a pretty special program marketing aside. It was really unique.
3: Mm -hmm. So the next takeaway I've got on my notes is, is that they both went all in. They sold their house. In England, they took out loans to make the business possible. And while that's not going to be a realistic scenario for, you know, everybody that's listening, it does serve to highlight to me the dedication that you need to make a success.
0: Mm -hmm. One foot in and one foot out, it never works. Darren, I know that you've got one more on your list.
3: I certainly do. And it is constructive feedback. So Natasha said something in that interview that really landed with me, and she—I'm going to quote her directly here. She said, "Every time that you have a failure, you have to train yourself to stop viewing it as a failure, but instead view it as a learning experience." And she gave a specific example that I thought was pretty funny at the time. But and, and she said, uh, "A customer emailed us about a cinnamon bun and how they." how they didn't like the recipe and Natasha felt like it was a personal attack on them at the time. But instead of wallowing or, you know, thinking that the customer was wrong, they channeled that energy into refining the product, looking for ways to make it better. And now it turns out that it's actually one of their most popular products. On all of this self-reflection, it all happened on a hike that they went on through, I believe it was Lynn Valley.
0: It was Lynn Canyon, right around the corner from me, actually. Constructive feedback Yep. Sometimes it can sting, but it really is a gift and being able to dig into that. And and I know that for myself, sometimes you do need to just get out of the office get out of the space you're in every day and get out into the wilderness. I know that works really well for me. If I'm stuck with something, trying to figure something out, I'm trying to innovate or iterate something, just plant the seed in the back of your mind and just go let it all go. And the answer just, it's magical. It all of a sudden appears, or you get that time to process while you're walking. Thanks for tuning in to the Made Possible podcast brought to you by Big Bold Brand and Small Business BC. We want this podcast to become a valuable community resource. So we're putting the ask out to you, our community, to help us build a following. If you found inspiration and insights in this episode to fuel your entrepreneurial fire, we're going to ask you to share it with a friend and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. You can get more info on the show And catch up on all the episodes to come at smallbusinessbc.ca forward slash podcast. If you have any feedback on the show, you can email madepossible at smallbusinessbc.ca. And if you want to get in touch with me, Carly Cunningham, you can connect with me on LinkedIn or visit my website at bigboldbrand.com. I want to give one big shout out to our producer Darren, who makes this possible. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.